I want to do whatever I can to help other people who go through this journey, which is why the whole body donation with Samik was so important to us. This is the James Cancer Free World Podcast. I'm Steve Wartenberg, and today our guest is Samik Roy Chowdhury. Samik was our very first guest, and way back then he explained his cutting-edge work in one of the most promising areas of cancer research and treatment, and that's precision cancer medicine. This type of treatment identifies and attacks the specific genetic mutations that cause a patient's cancer. And in that first podcast, Samik also mentioned a new clinical study that he and his team were working on, something that, that's called body donation for cancer research. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And in the second half of the podcast, we have a special guest, Carol Gibbs. Carol's husband, Jeff, was one of Samik's patients, and unfortunately, he passed away and was part of the body donation research study. And the story of Carol and Jeff, which we're going to hear, is one of courage and love and is a great example of how the patients in clinical trials and their caregivers are the unsung heroes of cancer research. Samik, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Steve. Thanks for being back. And first, before we jump in and talk about this new study you're doing, this body donation study and how it's helping you advance your work uh, and why that's so important, give us a quick update on precision cancer medicine and what you're up to and how that's going to tie into today's topic. Absolutely. So since we last spoke, uh, we've opened a number of new clinical trials bringing novel therapies to patients. And what we're seeing are successes where people are benefiting, responding to therapy uh, with few side effects. But what we're continuing to see is what we had talked about before is that while some therapies work really well, they can sometimes stop working. Uh, we're also seeing situations where we think something's going to work very well and the therapy doesn't work at all, and we're surprised. And so those two scenarios, a good response followed by resistance as well as no response at all, are what inspired our interest in, in wanting to partner with patients and families for body donation. And I think I remember in that first episode, I think I called you a detective. And that's what you just sort of said. Again, you're, you want to find the answer to why this didn't work. Right. And so that's your, that's your quest. What's the biological right. explanation for why the therapy stopped working or why the therapy never worked in the first place when we, we thought it should have? And, and that's, how you, that's one of the ways you do it is, is after a pa patient passes away. Right. And, and that body donation study uh, started about uh, just over two years ago. And uh, the, the basic uh, uh, strategy is uh, we partner with the patients participating in our clinical studies and their families. Uh, we ask them if they want to participate. Uh, it's much like body donation or organ donation uh, might be for someone who had a car accident. So can your organ help someone else? In, in this instance, can your organ and cancer help someone else? Um, the, the, the process uh, from passing to the research lab is short. We try to minimize uh, any uh, time or effort from the patient's families. Uh, we bring the patients uh, after they've deceased to the James. Uh, we do a limited autopsy where we collect samples of cancer uh, and organs involved by cancer. A anywhere uh, that the cancer anywhere is in, in the, the body. body right? Yeah, it can come from the liver, lung, um, brain, lymph nodes, soft tissues, anywhere. 
And then within a day, um, that step is complete. Uh, it's like a surgery. So we do a, a closure and we return uh, the deceased uh, back to the, the local funeral home. The body can undergo the same process of embalming, open casket, closed casket, cremation. None of those steps are affected. Uh, but what we've been able to do is collect those cancer samples that otherwise would never be studied. And that is now enabling us to ask questions that we really could not ask before as researchers. And uh, since the study has started, just over 32 patients have passed in that time. Um, and, and patients continue to sign up with their families. Uh, and we're really grateful uh, for all of those patients who've done that, uh, as well as their family members. When we started the study, we didn't have a lot of insight into what we were doing yet because it was new to us. Uh, so we spent about six months doing some research, uh, meeting with pathologists, meeting with our autopsy uh, uh, director, um, talking to patients and families about the concept. And uh, we did a little history research as well. And it turns out, you know, autopsy is the way modern medicine began. And uh, what we know about human anatomy, about the organs that make our bodies up, uh, the cells that comprise those organs, uh, all started with autopsies in, in the, the 1600s or 17th century uh, by physicians and pathologists who were doing autopsies. But they were actually illegal. Uh, so they would steal bodies from the graveyard or, or pay grave robbers to do so. Oh, that's where that phrase grave robber came Exactly, in. yeah. And, and uh, those autopsies, hundreds of autopsies written in textbooks and scientific textbooks in the 17th century helped lay the foundations. Uh, uh, very famous uh, physician researchers, uh, Rudolf Virchow and uh, uh, Giovanni Morgagni and many others uh, for a couple hundred years did these autopsies. Uh, and that is the foundation of what we know in terms of human anatomy, organs, and the cells that comprise those organs. Um, these guys are known as the, the father of organs and the father of, of cells. And, um, but after that period, autopsies as, as a tool for research and science sort of stopped. Um, probably a good thing because most of those were done illegally. Um, but more recently, uh, our team at the James, as well as a few other cancer centers, have started to do that again, but as a partnership. So as a partnership with patients uh, and families uh, to go back to the drawing board and ask, what can we learn about what just happened? Now, I think people are familiar with the term autopsy and that you see it in, in crime TV shows where they sort of helps you figure out what happened to the person. So it's, I'm guessing it's sort of the same concept where you're trying to figure out what the cancer did and, and how, how it, the uh, treatments worked or didn't work. Right. So we often know what the cause of death was. What we don't know is why did the cancer grow right. despite okay. our best efforts. And so how did it trick or beat or become immune to the treatment? Right. The, the patient may have been receiving chemotherapy. They may have been receiving a, a novel smart drug. They may have been receiving a therapy called immunotherapy to boost the immune system. But despite those therapies, those cancer cells continue to do the things that they're not supposed to do, which is grow and grow and grow. 
and then to travel and invade parts of the body where they don't belong. And, and that invasion is what leads to, to problems. It leads to organ failure, uh, in, invasion of the liver, invasion of the lung, predisposing to infection and, and failure of those organs. Um, so we often know what the cause of death was. What we don't know is why those cancer cells just didn't respond to the therapy. And so doing the autopsy is less about figuring out the cause of death, but more about getting to those cells and organs, taking them out, taking them back to the laboratory and dissecting on a molecular level what is happening. What are those cancer cells doing? Like looking at the DNA. So the DNA, the proteins, the, the, the communication between those cells and the rest of the body uh, how the immune system was reacting or not reacting properly. Those cells are still alive, right? Right. So within hours, within 12 hours, we can still see and collect viable organs and tissue. Obviously, the person has passed, uh, but we can still evaluate those cells. What have you found so far in, in, in these studies? So we, we've completed about 32 body donations, uh, cancer types varying from very rare cancers uh, to cancers that are more common, such as colorectal cancer. And what we're learning uh, in general themes is that uh, not every cancer cell in the body is the same, and that is contributing to how they become resistant to therapy. So if you have each of those cancer cells completely uniform, you could see how they could equally respond to a therapy. Meaning if there was one genetic mutation, it, you could figure out how it would respond. Right. But there's multiple gene, genetic, genetic but, mutations. But the greater diversity that that collection of cancer cells has, the greater chance they have of surviving therapy. I mean, the you can cancer look cells at the, have You can look at the therapy, therapy. As, a, as an insult right. to their ecosystem. And the more diversity that those cancer cells have in their ecosystem, in that person's body, the greater their chance that some or many of them could survive that therapy and escape chemotherapy or targeted therapy or immunotherapy. But is that a new concept for, for researchers, for scientists, that, that these um, cancer cells can have all these different uh, mutations and different permutations and and that there's not just one thing. It's not at all a new concept. The idea that all of our cancer cells are actually not the same is not new at all. We've, we've known that. We've suspected that. Biologically, it makes sense. There's going to be divergence as those cancer cells grow, propagate, and change. Uh, even the three of us here today, the, the, the cells in our body are not the same as the ones we were born with. They've changed over time and diverged. What is new is we can now study that process. We can now get to those cells. And without organ donation from our patients, we wouldn't ever be able to ask these questions. So by studying these 32 patients, what have you figured out or, or, or what have you started to figure out? Well, one of the things we had to do is, is actually develop the methods to study this process. So how do cancer cells evolve? How do cancer cells diverge? How do we name these classifications? We're, we're actually constructing trees or, or phylogenetic trees. You might look at a, a, geology or a, a history book and look at dinosaurs and how they diverge and how they diverge from birds and how they're related to crocodiles and so forth. 
We're actually trying to do that with those same cancer cells from one person. And like so we're, the we're, family tree of a cancer and how the different branches right. extend out. So we're developing the mathematical methods to do that. So how do we classify? How do we – we're using mutation counts. We're using uh, the, the genetic tools we have today in computer science. Um, but since not a lot of work has been done in this field yet, because uh, not many autopsies have happened in this era – uh, of, of genomic technologies, we're actually trying to lay out the groundwork for that. So you're the real pioneers in this. Uh, pioneers, yes. Uh, um, we're relying on existing tools that have been used in other fields and reapplying them here. So the pioneering is happening by entering this new era of, of body donation but we're trying to use existing strategies and tools, if that makes sense. But you've come up with a new way to utilize these existing tools. Absolutely. This mm-hmm. body. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with Samik, and we're going to introduce our special guest. A revolution in lung cancer treatment is happening at the James. We're proving lung cancer isn't solely defined by location and stage, but rather the individual molecules and genes that drive it. Simply put, there is no routine lung cancer. That's why our world-renowned specialists put their expertise towards treating one particular lung cancer, yours. At The James, we go beyond the routine to prevent, detect, treat, and cure your lung cancer. To learn more, call 1-800-293-5066. We're back, and I'd like to introduce you to um, Carol Gibbs. Carol, um, first... Just tell us a little bit about your husband, how you met him, what he did, what what kind of person he was. Let's get to know him a little bit. All right. He was um, he was a scientist at heart, which makes this whole process so close to our hearts because we know that everything that has happened from the point he was diagnosed is something that he would have been so interested in. Um, he was a dentist. We met when he was in dental school on a blind date, and um he had a thriving practice in Northwest Columbus, and we had three son, or we have three sons, and um, spent a lot of our years sitting in the stands watching them play sports and loved that. But we had just launched our youngest to go to college, and we're kind of looking forward to the next thirty years that we are going to be able to travel and do all sorts of things we hadn't been able to at that point when he was diagnosed with cancer. When was that that he was diagnosed? <clears throat> it was. July of 2017, he had had a lump on his neck, thinking it was just an infection. And a friend of his who's an ENT was actually in his chair. He was doing some work on him, said, Jeff, you might want to have that checked. And um, about two weeks later, after a course of antibiotics, it did not go away. So they did a biopsy. And within a phone call, our life drastically changed. Yeah, it does always change when you get that phone call that you have cancer. Mm -hmm. And then... And from what you, you told me before, a, a couple months after this, something else happened. Yes, yeah, so he had, he had a um, radical neck dissection. So they removed the nodes and the um, growth. Um, and we were at the James ready to start his first day of radiation. And I had had mammograms annually with many cystic lumps, not ever worrying about it because they were always benign. Um, and I had had one in August, and they had done another biopsy, and we didn't even think a second thought about it. But as we were at the James, as he was ready to walk into his first day of radiation, my phone rang, and it was my oncologist telling me that I, too, had breast cancer. So at that point, we had a situation where we had to share with the boys that both parents had cancer. 
And that was probably one of our hardest moments. So our strategy was at that point, mine was um, just a very early on form of cancer. And they have made so many advances in breast cancer that we knew pretty much what we would be able to do with uh, with mine. That you so had a very good chance a for a good outcome. Very good yeah. chance of an outcome. And I ended up having a radical um, a bilateral mastectomy. Um, so we just pretty much said, I'm going to be okay. But we need to focus on dad because his is a really unknown cancer. Well, you make that sound easy, but that's really <laughs> difficult to be a cancer patient and a caregiver at the same time it, is kind of heroic. <laughs> it was, it was, um, kind of a surreal experience in that we have a community of church friends, friends, his patients, his staff, our families surrounded us in a way that we never could even imagine. So we, they carried us through that. And our boys who are amazing, they were home every, someone was home every weekend to help with appointments, to help with medications. So um, I recovered quickly and Jeff's cancer, at that time, they realized that um, it was, they, they classified it as um, interdigitating dendritic spindle cell sarcoma. Oh, Samik, Samik, what does that mean? (laughs) (laughs) Hard to classify. Yeah. Is that one of those cancers of unknown origins that that you've mentioned before? Right, right. And and at that point, it was in several locations throughout his body. Yes, it it traveled rapidly. And um, so our middle son was in biology at Vanderbilt, and he would come home on the weekends, and they would sit and study the reports together. As science majors, they were fascinated by cancer and how it mutates um, and so we can it continued to grow so by December we pretty much knew things were not headed the way we had hoped so we started a very difficult round of chemo some new immunotherapy um, and he just never could get footing but he continued to um, want to try something new and early when he was diagnosed, we had heard about Samik, and a friend of ours had, who works at the James said, he's one of the most brilliant minds, an out-of-the-box thinker you really need to check and see what he has to say. So that was a really um, cool thing for us to be able to go to him and have him look at it with a fresh set of eyes and maybe look at it in a different way. So he took blood samples from the beginning. And was really careful not to step on our oncologist's toes, but they worked kind of in conjunction with each other to see if there was something that maybe we could do to slow the cancer or, or solve it, solve the cancer growth. How would you, to me, how would you sort of describe what was going on with Jeff and why his cancer was so difficult to treat? Well, well for a rare cancer such as this, we don't have a cookbook to go to. We don't have answers that are clear and right in front of us. So we have to think outside the box. Uh, the genetic testing that was done showed similar findings, which was that there were a lot of gene mutations uh, in the cancer, much more than we typically see. We call that hypermutated. And so uh, that in itself, that pattern of many mutations is usually something uh, in the past couple of years we look at and say, ooh, this could be a good opportunity to use a therapy to boost the immune system, a new class of therapy uh, that releases part of the immune system that's being repressed by the cancer. 
and try to unlock it and unleash that immune system to try to reject the cancer. Those extra mutations in the cancer cells make the cancer look more different from the rest of the body. So they're more foreign and perhaps more easily recognized by the immune system. Uh, but what we think is happening is the, the cancer has found a way to repress the immune system. So we need to help it, and that's what the therapy is supposed to do. And uh, so in this instance, the, the, our, our first thought, uh, as well as uh, uh, Dr. Liebner's, uh, mm -hmm. or, or his oncologist, was, was to do an immunotherapy. Right. How, how do you kind of handle this when things aren't going well and, and just – I, you sort of mentioned before how the whole family comes together and yeah. your community of people, but just, I mean, I can't even imagine what it's like to go through all this. You know, Jeff used to talk about um, the gift of cancer, which when he first mentioned it, it it threw me a little bit. Cause right, I thought it doesn't, that, yeah, it doesn't sound like But right. the gift of cancer for us was you realize how, what support system you have. You realize all the people who love you and, um, you, you look at life differently. You know, it's almost like the chaff being separated from the wheat. The little things don't matter anymore. The joys are much stronger and much you, you find joy in the simple things. Um, you, you just live life differently. And I think from the moment of the diagnosis, he had an attitude like my life's not my own. He was a follower of Christ. We both are. That there's going to be purpose in this somehow, even though I may not understand it and I may not see it this side of heaven, what is the purpose is, but I want to do whatever I can to help other people who go through this journey, which is why the whole body donation with Samik was so important to us. Um, and that was something that the boys and I, Jeff really never um, heard too much about it, but as he got sicker, and we knew that his time was coming to the end. The boys and I got together, and we knew we had to make some decisions. As you're growing up and you have kids and you're 50, you don't think that's something you're going to need to do until much later. So we knew we needed to do it in unison, and we um, got together on the porch, and we sat and talked about it. And, you know, I told them we need to go to bed and pray about it, and then tomorrow let's come together and see what you think is the best thing to do after dad passes. And with, unanimously, every single one of them said he would definitely want his body used for science. And what Samik doing is um, groundbreaking. It's something that has never been seen. So it gave purpose to the pain in a sense. For him, he was pain forward. And I can only imagine that he would love to know everything that they had found out about his cancer because even in the sickest, he wanted to know every detail. He was in touch with his oncologist, his surgical, oncolog surgical oncologist, Matt Old. They had a very close relationship and um, he wanted to know. He, he sounds like a pretty amazing and strong person. He was, he was an amazing guy, yeah. Tell, I just want people to know a little. Uh, how, <laughs> tell us, like, how did he describe him or and how he faced he, this challenge? Oh, he. Um, he was a big, strong guy. He worked out every day. He loved life. He loved his his kids. I think um, the biggest joy he had was watching his sons, and they all competed collegially in athletics. And um, he just he just um, got such a kick out of them. And he was always the first one in there ribbing them and just having fun with them. But um, his faith was the most important thing in his life, and he knew. 
he knew when he passed, he knew where he was going to be. So there wasn't fear in the dying, but there's curiosity about um, I hope that I finish strong, and I hope that um, I make a difference. And so I feel like this is one way that he was able to make a difference. And you and your sons make a difference, too, because caregiving is sort of another unsung role in, in this whole journey yeah. for people. So It was. It, it is, it's a difficult thing, but it's, it was a precious time, too. I mean, because who else gets to have a whole year of 24-7 sitting next to your husband just really kind of rehashing life and talking about hopes and dreams? And there's no one who is as invested in your children as the two of you are. So he was able to um, write letters to the boys that they would get at a later time and um, just really have meaningful conversations with those that he wanted to. So it was very sweet. So, Samik, you've probably, not just this family, but you've you've had a chance to get to know and and talk to a lot of families who go through this. It's tough for you on your side of it, too, I can imagine. Well, when we started the study, we we didn't expect – this type of engagement and, and gratitude and attitude, um, meeting people like Jeff. Take a second if you need it. It's really inspiring. <laughs> yes. Just listening to, to your, you, Carol, you talk it. I mean, you and your whole family are pretty amazing. You know, I've, we have three great sons. We, um, we watch them grow up in front of our eyes, which um, is very humbling for us to have to step back and have them step forward and care for us for a piece. But in the process, our middle son, who Samika has gotten to know, is applying to med school and is hoping to pursue oncology because he was so touched by this whole process. They were very involved in the chemo. They were involved in the surgeries. Um, I have to say the team at the James blew us away. From my team to his team to what Samik's doing, um, they work together. They made it easy on us. They continue to be in touch with us. So we could not have asked for better care. Samik, give us a sense of, and I'm not sure how far you are in the process, and of what did you learn from Jeff's autopsy when you looked at all his, his cancers and all the mutations? So, so one of the things we're trying to figure out is why... Uh, do patients uh, who have such hyper-mutated tumors with extra mutations not respond to therapy? And we're, we're, st- we're still trying to put that together. Uh, what we have observed in other patients is that sometimes uh, there's a, a mechanism that's an on switch for the immune system. Sometimes there's an off switch. Those on and off switches can be on the tumors, and they can also be on the immune cells. And so when someone's tumor is so hypermutated that it can actually turn on and off switches on or off randomly. And so And there's a lot of switches, right? Correct. There's over 800 switches at least that are being studied in the immune system, some that we're trying to use to help patients. And and so I think in this instance it's a disruption of some of those on and off switches. Uh, where hypermutation, where we think it's usually helpful in this instance, perhaps it led to a problem internally with the immune system interacting with the cancer, uh, which didn't let the immune therapy work as well as we had hoped. Mm -hmm. Carol, I just want to kind of wrap up and ask you 
how this whole experience, what you learned, how it changed you and your family and, and your outlook as you go forward? Well, we always knew that um, the James was a really top-notch place. But we didn't realize the gift it was in our community. We had grown up in Arlington, and um, just having access to really high-quality care was an amazing thing. But personally for us, it's um, it's just changed the way we look at life. You know, we know that we're here for a number amount of days, and we don't want to waste it. And Jeff didn't want to waste it. So he felt like the la- his last year, he really wanted people to know who he was and where he was going and that life mattered. And he shared his faith just left and right as often as he could. But he was also so grateful for those who had poured into his life, his family, my family, friends, his patients, um, his partner, it, and, and the boys. So I think going forward now, we just love more deeply. We really um, we see the joys. We choose joy every day. We try not to let the little things get us down and because we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. Thank you very much for sharing your story, it's, and thank you for everything that you've mm-hmm. done for your husband, for your family, for research, and for, for the future. And, sure. and Samika, as well, I just want to, what's sort of the, your next step in this research? So, so the study is going to continue. We're going to expand and, and approach more patients, more families, study every cancer type that we can. And, you know, today, you know, talking to, to you, to, to both um Hearing what what Jeff referred to as this gift of of cancer in that way, um, that gift that he has given our research team, we're going to use that. And and as well as all of the other patients and families uh, thus far, um, our goal is is to provide more meaningful moments for those families and others someday. I I take it meeting people like Carol and Jeff is what, Mm-hmm. Makes keeps you you and your team going, right? Well, thank you both for this great and very important episode of our podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center, Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital, and Richard J. Solov Research Institute. For more information, check out our website, cancer.osu.edu.